Welcome to the Brizo Magazine podcast. The article you are about to hear is a part of our February 2021 issue, Veza, all about connection. The written piece can be found on our website at brizomagazine.com. Pygmalion Pursuits, written by Jade Fogerston, read by Jade Fogerston. The past. Greek mythology, as I superficially see it, is the precursor to soap operas, reality television, and grocery store erotica novels. It is tightly packed with gossip, drama, love, hate, tragedy, sex, scandal. So, during the second order of the ancient world, when Gaia, Greek primordial deity and titan mother, asked her son Cronos to kill his father Oranos, Cronus did what any character wrapped up in a shamelessly enthralling plotline would do. He happily obliged. Gaia, the Earth Mother, and Uranus, the Sky Father, used to have a fine marriage. It was a little cursed to begin with, I suppose, considering Uranus was actually Gaia's son. But things just seemed to happen back then, and together they conceived the cosmic red carpet that started this whole mess. History, you know. And they are the reason we crawled this linear path of chronological cloth that is still unfurling to this day. After that abstract birth of a metaphysical notion, they then had a lot of actual kids. Most notably, they had twelve titans, of which Cronus is one. And less notably, they had two sets of triplets. The first set were the Cyclopses, named Brontes, Thunder, Sterops, Lightning, and Argus, Brightness. Uranos, being the sky and all, naturally enjoyed the presence of these children. They all worked together quite well on occasion. The second set of triplets, however, proved to be far more controversial. These were the Hecaton Kires. There was Cotus, the Furious, Gyges, the Long-Limbed, and Agajan, the Seagoat. They all had 50 heads and 100 hands. Now, I'm giving a quick interjection here to say that personally, I think the mere idea of the Hecaton Kires is everything I have ever wanted from mythology, and would go so far as to declare them as the ideal beauty standard of today's world. I mean, 50 heads, 100 hands? You could sign me up. I also resonate with the seagoat descriptor as well. Gaia loved all her children, but Uranus was being kind of like, lame. He decided they were too ugly, and so he forced them back into Gaia's womb, which is just classic marriage on the rock stuff. Gaia didn't take this too well, and she decided she was done with Uranus and his attitude, and wanted him dead. Enter Kronos. Kronos was, from what I understand, a bit brooding with a flair for the dramatic. It was these traits that meant that instead of simply striking his father with a large scythe as originally planned, he decided to approach Uranus mid-coitus with Gaia and castrate him, which he did. And in a show of masculine bravado and patricidal glory, he flung his father's blood and semen-covered member across all of Greece. You will simply not believe how this story connects to the rest of this article. At the end of its aerial tour of the Balkans, Uranus's severed genitals landed in the ocean, and from its landing site, seawater and seminal fluid swirled and twisted until the ocean frothed into a pearly champagne foam that bubbled and spit, until suddenly it birthed the most breathtaking and beguiling beauty yet to exist, Aphrodite. Her name can be translated back to from the foam. Yes, this is what happened moments before the gorgeous scene depicted in Botticelli's infamous painting, a castration. Aphrodite, having walked lightly upon sea foam and spindrift, took her first earthbound step on the island of Cyprus, 
thus making it sacred to her from then on. The present. It's 2 a.m. It's 2 a.m. and I am 17 and I am shocked because it's 2 a.m. I could have sworn I checked my phone an hour ago. Didn't it say 10 p.m.? Wasn't it only 10 p.m.? I look down at my watch one more time. My mouth hangs open. It is definitely 2 a.m. Now, I am only four hours away from waking up. Soon, I'll be languishing in the sting of a morning alarm. Soon, I'll be driving along a navy road through the sandpaper Northern California sunrise with my sister. Soon. So soon. I guess some part of me knew that's why I was starting to see blurry. My eyes always get watery and bloodshot when I'm tired. I curve my parentheses spine back to some semblance of straight and crack my neck. My throat is sleepy, vocal cords eroded from a vibrato landslide. I'm covered in cords and cables. They crawled up me as time progressed, entangling limbs and engulfing elbows, rooting me to my window seat, mooring me to the lullaby lilt of my piano. I am a castle wall, and it is only when I look down at my ivy-ravaged stone that I realize how long I have been standing here, that I realize I am now ruins, and that the royalty I once accommodated has drained from me as time passed. Nothing feels better than this. Nothing can feel better than this. I'm cleaning up, wrapping cables, putting microphones back into their boxes. This exhaustion is so pure, so earned. It's not weariness, that doughy and listless residue that sweeps itself into the cracks of your consciousness even after you've rested. No. It isn't debilitation either. Not a, not a thankless emptiness that follows the beration of all well-preserved energy. It is, instead, a wholesome fatigue. A sleepiness that follows the frenzied burst of creation, like poking a blister and watching it drain. I've done something I love for hours on end. And I've done it not because I wanted to, but because I simply had to. Because it was intolerable not to. Because it consumed me and puppeteered me. It is left now. I can crawl into my bed, and I will sleep soundly for the four hours I have. It is 2 a.m. The past. Fast forward now to some point in the Silver Age of Ancient Greece. We're still on the island of Cyprus, but we're now focused on a man named Pygmalion. Pygmalion was a sculptor from the port town of Amathus. By all accounts, he was a sensitive man, artistic, devoted mainly to his clay and chisels and rasps, and an admirer of love. Not any love. True love. Deep love. Real love. The type of love that almost always ended poorly in Grecian myths. To Pygmalion, love was sacred. It was reserved for an enamored heart bursting like a Cupid-struck water balloon. It was not frivolous or half-inflated. Cyprus at this time, being the island of Aphrodite and all, was getting a reputation for being a bit sexually uninhibited and indulgent, and was seen by many of the Greek mainlanders the same way many tourists see Amsterdam's red-light district. It was debauched to some, enticing to others, and a taboo concoction of both to most. Pygmalion had grown tired of the unbridled affairs of the island, and decided to swear off love and sex eternally. He would instead work only on his one true love, his art. But Aphrodite grew offended by this. An attractive and talented eligible bachelor? Swearing himself to celibacy? Impossible. O offensive, even. It was her island of love, and she would disrespect people's boundaries if she wanted to. So it happened that one day, 
looking down on Pygmalion as he worked tirelessly on a new sculpture of a military general, Aphrodite decided to stir up a bit of trouble. The present. My friend Genevieve, who inspires everything I do, think, and write, once talked to me in great detail about Elizabeth Gilbert's TED Talk on creativity. Elizabeth Gilbert, if you don't know, is the author of Eat, Pray, Love, and while I didn't have much of an opinion on her or her book, after watching her TED Talk, I became a bit obsessed. My true fans will note that I cited a TED Talk in my last article, too. What can I say? I'm a big fan of the whole human speaking on the human condition thing. It's kind of cool. Gilbert's talk is posed originally as a way to condemn the perpetuated belief that all creatives must be tortured or troubled. She pulls the fancified curtain down to expose the contemptible notion that art is and should be some process of starvation. A potential way to fix this, she proposes, is to move away from our Enlightenment-influenced idea that this or that artist is a genius, and instead accept the culturally distinct thought that perhaps people have a genius. What struck me most about Gilbert's suggestion was an example she gave in relation to American poet Ruth Stone, an incredible writer from Roanoke, Virginia. Please read her poem, The Pair. I adore it. I had this encounter recently where I met the extraordinary American poet Ruth Stone, who's now in her 90s, but she's been a poet her entire life, and she told me that when she was growing up in rural Virginia, she would be out working in the fields, and she said she would like feel and hear a poem coming at her from over the landscape, and she said it was like a thunderous train of air, and it would come barreling down at her over the landscape, and when she felt it coming, because it would like shake the earth under her feet, she knew that she had only one thing to do at that point, and that was to, in her words, run like hell, and she would like run like hell to the house, and she'd be getting chased by this poem, and the whole deal was that she had to get to a piece of paper and a pencil fast enough so that when it thundered through her, she could collect it and, um, and grab it on the page. And other times, she wouldn't be fast enough, so she'd be like running and running and running, and the, she wouldn't get to the house, and the poem would like barrel through her, and she would miss it, and she said it would continue on across the landscape, looking, as she put it, for another poet. And, um, and then there were these times, this is the piece I never forgot, she said that there were moments when she would almost miss it, right? So she's like running into the house and she's looking for the paper and the poem passes through her and she grabs a pencil just as it's going through her and then she said it was like she would reach out with her other hand and she would catch it. She would catch the poem by its tail and she would pull it backwards into her body as she was transcribing on the page and in these instances the poem would come up on the page perfect and intact but backwards from the last word to the first. This struck me because as Gilbert points out, almost any creative, and I use this term loosely and unpretentiously, I promise, can relate to it in some regard. Gilbert herself says she's come into contact with something like this, even though she likens herself to being more of a mule than a pipeline when amidst her writing process. Toiling through the work, hunkering down to complete these tasks of mental and innovative strength, as opposed to being divinely and rapidly inspired. And it shocks me how people across the ages have spoken of creativity in such a similar way. In high school, I took a music theory course in which we listened to musician Victor Wooten's book, The Music Lesson. This book was really cool. It was creative, it was dynamic, it was just the right concoction of hippy-dippy spirituality, structured theoretical information, and fun. Wooten says at one point that all songs that have ever been written, or ever will be written, already exist. They're floating in the air, and it just happens to be the person who listens or hears it first who gets to claim it as their own. To me, this is deeply reminiscent of Ruth Stone's flying and thundering poems that led her running through rural Virginian fields. 
this idea that creativity is an external force, or perhaps many forces. Deities, they come to your bedside and wake you up in a hurry because they've lit a match in your newly petrol-soaked neurons. The past. Pygmalion was sculpting his stately general and, probably, bitterly mumbling about his newfound distaste for romance. He wiped his forehead before continuing to carve out his rugged jawline, chisel his rigid abdomen, and fleck lines into his chin to mimic stubble. It was just after he'd been focused in on his statue's fingernail, intently curving the cuticle line just so, that he pulled his head away to find that the pinnacle of masculinity he had been carving for months had been completely transformed. Instead, the marble figure that stood in front of him was a sculptor of the most gorgeous woman Pygmalion had ever seen. The artist gasped. How had this happened? Was this some strange act of the subconscious? Had his newfound celibacy already gotten to his head like this? But soon, the answers didn't matter. Pygmalion couldn't focus much on trying to understand what had happened. He was completely and utterly awestruck by the sculpture. The deceptive softness of her figure, her warm eyes, the pendulous curls of her hair, her sly, upturned smile. Pygmalion was so entranced by her, he found himself downturning his head, blushing in her presence. When he looked up again, he became sure that this was no statue after all. She was too alive, too bright, too tender. She must be flesh and blood and of a beating heart. His hand reached out gently to take her hand, certain to feel her pulse beneath the supple flesh of her hand. His fingers jumped back when they collided with icy marble instead. And so, Pygmalion sat. He sat and he stared and he marveled and he gawked and he felt bashful and impressed and inadequate and honored and suddenly he realized that he was feeling more than lust for this statue. He couldn't believe it and trust me, he tried to deny it, but he realized in one big cumulative rush of feeling that he was, in fact, in love. Pygmalion named the statue Galatia, and all he could do was think about her. Every morning he awoke, threw on his bathrobe, and scuttled toward his studio to give her a grandiose good morning and a hug. He would offer her coffee or tea, breakfast and dinner, and before he would leave for the market, he would kiss her goodbye and ask her if she needed anything hopeful and gut-wrenched in the silence that would inevitably follow. The present. I used to feel like a pipeline. That's why when I heard Gilbert's anecdote about Ruth Stone, I felt firecrackers spring to light in my forehead. Yes, I thought, exactly. And God, it feels so good to hear someone else articulate it. I used to feel like a pipeline because I used to be suddenly struck with inspiration. I'd be sitting, doing my coursework, humming in the shower, driving a car, making lunch on a run, and suddenly I'd hear it, or see it, or feel it. I'd freeze with widened eyes, as though the top of my head had been struck by some divine lightning bolt. I had to work, to create whatever image had conjured itself up to me, to channel out this newfound electricity via my fingertips. From there, it was inevitable. I had no control over the matter. It was like slipping into another skin, saying hello to some alternative dimension me, one whose only and eternal purpose is to make and create and manifest the metaphysical into a tangible product. It was a sort of madness, a desperation, a clawing and animalistic rush to transcribe thought and feeling. Corporeal or physiological needs were secondary, and it was the conjoining of being both entirely present and simultaneously meditative. It was fearful and anxious as well as knowing and assured, it was thriving in a liminal space, 
an ambiguous great plain stretched between the place where one thinks something up and the other where one has something to show. Then I would hit some wall. Maybe I was finished, or maybe the rhythmic unfolding of composition had fallen out of step, I, I don't know. But like a cat fleeing from a loud noise, my second self would be ripped from me suddenly, and I would be dumbstruck and newly conscious. And somehow, it would be 2 a.m. The past. In the midst of his euphoric love for Galatia, Pygmalion also felt an unignorable and gnawing hollowness. He knew that their union, while wonderful to him, could not be complete. They couldn't hold one another, whisper secrets back and forth, go for an evening walk together, or grow old in one another's company. She was, after all, a marble. <laughs> so one day Pygmalion decided that the pain was too great. All he wanted more than anything in the world was for Galatia to be alive like him. Thus, he decided to head to a temple of Aphrodite and pray that she would grant his wish and imbue life unto Galatia. Pygmalion walked there sputtering and mumbling with nervousness. You see, he recognized the awkwardness of his position here, with him being a man who had once judged the libidousness of his fellow members of Cyprus, now being a man in love with a sexily carved slab of stone. That's a lot of pride to swallow, but it was worth it, anything was worth it, if it meant Galatia would come to life. When Pygmalion arrived at the temple, he prayed and pleaded to Aphrodite, only slightly embarrassed by onlookers and overhearers. The Greek gods were not normally generous and kind. Most mythology surrounds them horribly punishing mortals for their transgressions or tricking them to teach some strict moral lesson. Aphrodite, however, was overjoyed to hear Pygmalion's prayer, as it was her who had transformed his sculpture in order to make him take back his renunciation of love. She was more than happy to realize her scheme had worked. She had won. The candles in front of Pygmalion shot out seven-foot-tall flames and steam erupted from the earth. Pygmalion leapt up in excitement. This had to be a good sign. He found himself dashing home, pushing past children, the elderly, family and old schoolmates, desperate to reach his studio and see Galatia alive and breathing and smiling. As he flung his front door open, he looked frantically around with wild eyes and a heaving chest. Perhaps she would be looking through his art supplies, or gardening, or sitting in a chair waiting to see him. His heart, however, sunk to see her in the middle of the room, standing in an all-too-familiar pose with an all-too-familiar expression. She was still marble. Pygmalion felt a wave of dread and disappointment come crashing through him. His eyes welled up and his hand trembled. It wasn't meant to be. Aphrodite hadn't granted his wish. Depleted, Pygmalion went to grab Galatia's hand and pulled himself toward her in a solemn embrace. It didn't matter, he thought. He would love her as marble, still. He turned his head towards her and kissed Galatia tenderly, tears rolling down his cheeks. As he pulled away, he cocked his head to the side, confused. Surely he was confused. Surely this wasn't true, but it, it felt as though, well... Was her hand growing warm? He kissed her again, inquisitively. He paused. He kissed her another time. Slowly but surely, he felt that she seemed to be slowly coming alive, that her fingers were starting to wiggle, that color was rosying her lips. Overjoyed, Pygmalion grabbed Galatia and kissed her again and again and again until suddenly he felt his hand squeezed and his kiss returned. He pulled away exuberantly to see Galatia, her face a mosaic of moving expression, her pulse running, her eyes blinking, 
flesh and blood, wit and grace. She was alive, and she loved him too. The present. I'm not a pipeline anymore. Or, at least, I haven't been one in a while. I cannot really remember the last time I ran like hell to catch a poem or a song or anything. I have no recollection of the final moment in which I was so deeply overtaken by inspiration that I lost track of the world around me. Truth be told, I am envious of Pygmalion. Pygmalion who, in loving his work so deeply, he gave it color and dimension and life and movement, who doted upon his creation so often and so devotedly that it drew a breath and better yet, it loved him back. This is sometimes how these meditative and manic states felt, the singular focus, the intensity of designing, the desperation to pull something together in fear that my alternate dimension self, the one who made my sudden creative abilities possible, would leave me before the work would be finished, in fear that I would have to wander around my life with some half-done, rough-hewn idea, waiting for the creative spirit to whisper to me again and put me back in my innovative trance. It was akin to a sloppy and intense love affair. It was passion, pure and deep, passion intense enough to bring someone to life. I'm more of a mule these days. I slog and sweat over my work. I have to culminate energy to complete it and return to it day after day. I do not relish or indulge in it the way I once did. Now, this is honest and hard work. This isn't some gasping or yearning detonation of insight. I'm present and I am exerting mental effort. It's not glamorous or artistic, but it is thoughtful. It is purposeful. Not a love affair of bursting and bubbling desire, but instead a simple and decent marriage. A knowing frustration at the unavoidable moments of incompatibility, but a union that produces moments and work with which I feel proud. This is a good thing. I won't deny that. But every now and then, I would like it if I could have a moment or two in which I'm struck anew. To have a reunion with my second self. A liminal tango and an ambiguous lay a primal furiousness of production, to, just as Pygmalion excitedly exclaimed, she's alive, contentedly and tiredly whisper, it is 2 a.m. again. Mm -hmm.